Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Pastor Scott Richards. We're hey, back everybody. To the, <laughs> the old style of doing things. Hopefully, uh, tech issues will be few and far between, but we'll see. I'm usually not in this chair, am I? <laughs> no. no. But uh, nonetheless, the format of the broadcast has not changed. If you would like to send us your questions, you can do so through our usual venues, first and foremost. If you want to join us on our website, uh, you can, of course, go to calvarychristianfellowship.com where you can watch us live and on the air. We will circumvent any of the social media shenanigans that may stand in your way. And, of course, the principles that would prevent people from wanting to engage with those things, we empathize. But uh, say you want to send us your questions more privately, you can do so through email at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Note the questions is plural questions, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. And if you send those to us, we'll be able to keep them nice and organized. Say, for example, we ran out of time before we could get to your question. If you resend that to us, since we can't revisit live chats, that will help us uh, reuse your question on future dates as well. So remember, questions for hope is the main way you can send your questions to us. You can join us on Facebook at CCF Tucson or Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And if you do give us a like there, you'll be notified of when we are going live, if we are going live on that platform. Sometimes they give us the runaround and we don't have to guess why. And also note on YouTube, uh, it's definitely our main platform for now. We'll use it while we still have the liberty. A Reason for Hope is our page, and if you search that and see the uh, elder and I standing in front of the Israeli flag on top of the Fortress of Masada, I believe it was. Yep, that's where we were. Yeah, and uh, observing the modest weight gain that I had over the trip, which, by the way, no regrets on that. Israeli food's awesome. (laughs) You can subscribe to us, hit the notification bell, and you'll be notified when we are going live, as well as have a chat box to send us your questions as you see fit. But note that that's all available and ready for you as well on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y. You can click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you'll be sent to where you can engage with us personally. And also note as well, listen to previous broadcasts that will be playing automatically if you aren't joining us live. But with all that said, and speaking of joining us, we want to make sure that the uh, two or three gathered in his name includes the spirit. So why don't we take a moment to pray before we start answering questions and getting into a prophecy update? I think that's a capital idea. (laughs) All right. Lord, thank you so much that we have this opportunity to be able to uh, investigate your word, to be able to dive deep into your truth and to see not only how it can inform our understanding of looking at the world around us, but changes from the inside out. Lord, you know our hearts, especially in these tough times can uh, really feel kind of beaten down and discouraged. I pray, Father, that you would speak words of edification, building people up, strengthening them with a foundation that won't fail them, even in the storms of life, Uh, that there be exhortation, that we would have a very practical and visible faith in you, where uh, your principles of your word make a difference in our lives each and every day. But Lord, especially, we need in these days your comfort. We pray that we would realize we're not alone, that you stand with us, and then in the shelter of your wings we may find refuge. Lord, we pray that all these truths and a whole lot more uh, will be communicated by you during this time, and we invite your presence here. uh, Cause even those uh, perhaps uh, looking at a relationship with you from the outside in 
uh, beckon them to a, a genuine encounter with you, even as this broadcast unfolds. We know that it is your desire that none should perish, but that all should come to know your Son. We pray, Father, that your will would be done and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. All right, so while the individuals listening are getting their sincere Bible questions ready, a uh, quick update as far as events on God's prophetic calendar. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, we mention here on the broadcast quite a bit uh, is uh, the idea that we are not only praying for Israel in the midst of this conflict, but we're also praying for the Palestinian people uh, as well. Uh, there is going to be no peace in the Middle East, ultimately, until the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself, returns to right this world gone wrong. We aren't uh, naive about that prospect. But it is also uh, a very interesting question. Could the events in Gaza be another example of God working all things together for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose in a radical way? Uh, is it possible at all uh, that as a result of what happens here, uh, the extreme evil of Hamas being put on display, uh, the consequences that uh, the Palestinian people have had to endure as a result of supporting uh, this particular government and uh, standing with them. Uh, could this result in a radical change of heart and mind among uh, the Palestinian people, uh, including a mass turning of Palestinians to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, we could certainly speculate about this, but uh, interesting input on this particular subject on our good friend uh, Joel Rosenberg's uh, allisrael.com uh, website today. Uh, fascinating article with this headline, Palestinian evangelical Tas Sa'ada believes many people in post-war Gaza will abandon Hamas ideology and turn to Christ. Well, if there's anyone who could be a poster child, if you will, of an unlikely individual turning to Christ uh, from a, a radical Muslim background. It has to be Tas Sa'ada. Uh, he is now a self-identifying Palestinian evangelical Christian from Gaza, and he believes that a great spiritual awakening is about to take place in the Gaza Strip when the Hamas terrorist organization is finally and fully vanquished on uh, Joel Rosenberg's uh, The Rosenberg Report broadcast, which is aired on the Trinity Broadcasting Network. Sa'ada predicted that many Gazans will abandon Islam and turn away from the Hamas terror path. Uh, this is Sa'ada's quote. This is where I know there is hope for the rest of the Palestinians. I believe this because we are living in the end of time and that this, this is the real end of time. What we're seeing today happening is really one of the signs of the end of times because it's not normal. The destruction that is taking place first by the evil work of Hamas, by attacking Israel is in a radical, very evil way. And naturally Israel had to respond and defend themselves, he included. Uh, Saada told Rosenberg he is convinced that after Hamas is gone, Palestinians will sit back and think. God has a plan, he said. I believe the Arabs and the Jews are also part of that and that is where my hope is. Well, uh, once again, before the war broke out, uh, Sa'ada had been living in Israel, planning to move back to Gaza and expand his ministry work there. He's determined to return to help rebuild Gaza and Palestinian society after uh, the event. He and his wife, Karen, founded the group Hope for Ishmael, a ministry committed to the reconciliation of Arabs and Jews, and Seeds of Hope, a nonprofit humanitarian organization that provides uh, assistance to impoverished people in the Middle East. 
God is doing a lot of work there, he told Rosenberg. His team on the ground has been doing a lot of work during the war. That's why they are telling me this harvest is going to be huge and urged Sa'ada to come back. Now, a little background about Ta'as Sa'ada. Uh, he was uh, born uh, in uh, as a Palestinian Muslim, born in Gaza, raised in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. When he grew up, he became a radical Islamist terrorist and eventually served, believe it or not, as a sniper for the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. He was the personal driver for the late Palestinian leader, Yasser Arafat. Uh, Sa'ada uh, became radically saved. And if you want to hear his testimony, I'd highly encourage you uh, to go to allisrael.com and uh, you can watch both parts of the interview Joel Rosenberg does uh, with Ta Sa'ada. Uh, but uh, Sa'ada claims he's not the only Gazan who's undergone such a transformation. He knows of one Hamas operative who was preparing for a suicide bombing but was saved at the very last minute. He told Rosenberg he had a belt on and was ready to go the next morning to blow himself up in Israel somewhere. Jesus appeared to him that night and said in a dream, what you're about to do is evil. I am Jesus. Follow me. A uh, very interesting thing that Ta Sa'ada uh, says uh, in this interview, he believes that a political solution is possible between Israel and Palestine, but not the two-state solution that is often put forward. And he bases this, believe it or not, on a prophecy from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 47. There, the Lord spoke to the prophet Ezekiel about dividing the land among the tribes of Israel and claimed the verse is about giving an equal portion of land to each tribe. But then he goes on to say this, the Lord speaking in Ezekiel 47 and verse 21, you are to distribute this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You are to allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the foreigners residing among you who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites along with you. They are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. And whatever tribe a foreigner resides, there you are to give them their inheritance, declares the sovereign Lord. So Sa'ada believes that the path to peace between Israel and the Palestinians isn't a two-state solution, but a one-state federation with a constitution that would give equal rights to both Arabs and Jews. Uh, under this vision that he presented to uh, formal, former U.S. President Donald Trump's team, Israel should claim sovereignty over the West Bank and that Gaza should be developed separately. So fascinating. Uh, the only thing I would say uh, in uh, response to that is that Ezekiel 47 is speaking about the condition of the promised land after Jesus returns. And it is only after the hearts of the people return to the Lord that uh, such a federation is uh, going to be practical. Although the nation of Israel itself, one of the uh, criticisms of Israel uh, kind of a red herring, uh, a, a hysterical uh, accusation against them, is that they're an apartheid state. Uh, in other words, uh, Arabs in Israel do not have rights. Uh, they do not have privileges. They are systematically uh, discriminated against. Well, the fact of the matter is, we've talked about this on a number of occasions, but uh, Arabs in Israel uh, who are Israeli citizens have full rights to vote, full rights to employment, full rights to protection under the law. Uh, there is a political party in the Knesset that is made up of entirely uh, Arab 
Israeli citizens, who, by the way, is very friendly and supportive of uh, not only uh, Fatah, uh, the uh, terrorist organization that runs the West Bank, but also Hamas, and are still allowed to be a part of the Knesset. So in a sense, we see a foreshadowing of this. I don't believe Ezekiel 47 will be fulfilled until Jesus, in fact, comes back again. But uh, what a beautiful thing it is to know that so many uh, Muslims, even in Gaza, uh, are being radically saved and lives are being transformed and that there are ministries uh, like this outreach uh, to uh, the uh, sons of uh, Ishmael uh, that we see described here uh, that, that are going on today. So uh, when we tell you to pray uh, for the protection of Israel, for the peace of Jerusalem, uh, we certainly mean that, but we also uh, want you to redouble your prayers as well, that uh, the Lord would change the hearts and minds of the Palestinian people and bring them to a saving relationship with Jesus. It's a pretty intense prophecy update, huh? Always preferred. Yeah, exactly. With that said, we got uh, some questions sent along to us by email and as well some questions we did not get to yesterday. So why don't we start with Bob's question. Speaking of the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, he says, I believe there will be those with glorified bodies and those with natural bodies. We agree. David and other Old Testament saints will be there in resurrection bodies, I think. Uh, does Revelation 20 exist? Yes. Okay, so we would agree with that too. Uh, could you please talk about those who among these various people will be and just how they will be able to physically interact with one another? So the question is, is a glorified well, body different from a resurrection body in substance? Uh, the best way to go about this, Bob, I think, is to understand our model for a resurrection body, what we have to expect. There's three main passages beyond Revelation itself describing their goings and comings. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 describes the process of the resurrection. Jesus first modeled it and that we share that same hope. Second, the moral, I guess, uh, transition, the judgment that will include for believers, the transition from this tent, he calls it, in 2 Corinthians 5, into a house made eternal in the heavens, and right. using the same language in chapter 15 of the previous book. And then 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and if uh, you have the last of those up right now, feel free. But uh, the idea behind it is the way that Jesus physically interacted with his disciples would put to rest any confusion as to whether or not we'll be these ethereal spirits with, you know, like uh, hosts of uh, angels and like wings and stuff around us and st will be just like his glorious body, which was just as much human as you and I. In fact, Jesus went out of his way to emphasize how tangible it was. Yeah, Luke, Luke 24, there's a great example of this, and I think it answers uh, Bob's question really well. Uh, we are told that when Jesus appeared to his disciples, uh, uh, after uh, the disciples' eyes were opened, uh, the road to Emmaus situation uh, took place. The two disciples that uh, recognized Jesus when he broke bread, when he physically interacted uh, with this environment, even in his resurrection body, they recognized him. And uh, then they came to Jerusalem. They found the 11 who were gathered there, said, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that happened on the road, how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, as he said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said, peace to you, the traditional shalom greeting that we see there. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they'd seen a spirit. 
And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they, were, they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. So here we see Jesus saying, you can reach out and touch me. I can be physically handled. Uh, I can interact with things in the world, uh, even so much so that uh, he has some fish and uh, some honeycomb as uh, a uh, lunch or as a snack at that particular time. So uh, those of us that have resurrection bodies, we are told that in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 3, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. We're going to have a resurrection body just like Jesus did. And what a resurrection body will allow us to be able to do is to allow us, as those of us who are perfected, we are glorified, we will not know sin or death or decay anymore, but we will have the ability to be able to interact with this physical world and with the tribulation survivors who are going to be regular, mortal, normal human beings who enter that thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, you know, it's not going to be kind of like uh, the Gnostics said about Jesus, that if you try to reach out and touch him, your hand would go right through him because they said that, you know, the flesh can have nothing to do uh, or the spirit can have nothing to do with the physical world. Uh, no, uh, we're going to have perfected, glorified bodies, but they will be tangible. They will have that ability to be able to interact. So uh, those who are regular mortal human beings who are part of this kingdom, uh, who survived the tribulation period, go into it, have children, so on, during this thousand-year reign. Um, there's going to be two kinds of people I guess you're going to interact with, uh, glorified and perfected beings like us, and uh, there's going to be people that are going to be regular mortal human beings in that particular setting, although the difference between those who enter into this uh, thousand-year reign and the way we live now is going to be pretty radically different. Uh, Isaiah uh, says that people are going to be living as old as trees. If someone dies at 100, they'll be thought to have died as a child. So um, even regular, normal, mortal human beings are going to be different. We'll be different, but not so much so that, like you say, it's kind of the ethereal, otherworldly, you know, ooky spooky kind of a thing. We will have a body that can interact with the physical, although in a perfect way. Yes, with Jesus' glorified body as the model. Right. And right. if you want more information about the goings and comings of the millennium itself, Revelation 20 gives the outline that you were referencing as far as those entering into the tribulation and leaving it will, of course, since they had not received the mark on their right hand or foreheads. When was that introduced? The halfway point of the tribulation. Right. They will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 4 of Revelation 20 tells us, and it also notes the physical resurrection of those who are, well, basically trusting in Jesus up until this point in history. Verse 6 notes that the rest of the dead did not rise again until the end of the thousand years. Right. So there's this constant repeating theme of these set periods of time, these individuals who participate in it, yeah. and those who won't. Yeah. And if with a, uh, I guess, not complete, but certainly an informed understanding of the Old Testament, you'll note that a lot of these things are intentionally referenced. Yeah. So 
Let yeah. us know if that helps you out, Bob. We won't be ghosts. <laughs> we will be able to interact with each other and ghosts. stay with us. <laughs> yeah. um, Dwayne wants to know, do you think that AI is the image of the beast? No. Um, well, I think we could elaborate on that uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, when we talk about the image of the beast, uh, what that is is a reference to Revelation chapter 13 that talks about uh, when the Antichrist comes to power. He's not going to come to power alone. He's going to have a protege, uh, an individual called the false prophet, who is going to do miracles in the presence of the first beast. Uh, we are told that one of these great signs in verse 13 is that he makes fire come down from heaven and the earth in the sight of all men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here's wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, his number is 666. So this image of the beast is going to be a likeness of the beast that is uh, going to be given breath and actually come to life. Uh, the, uh, the debate that goes on about all of this is, well, isn't God the only one who can breathe the breath of life into something and make it come alive? Uh, there is nothing in this passage that indicates that this is uh, a con uh, that this is a sleight of hand. Uh, it does appear that uh, during this time, and remember 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, is going to allow strong delusion during uh, this time. Uh, there are going to be those uh, that are going to be led astray by all uh, wonder signs and, and uh, lying uh, miracles uh, because they didn't receive the love of the truth in order to be saved. Uh, the only way you're not going to be taken in by this uh, song and dance by the Antichrist and the false prophet is if uh, you have, in fact, uh, come to a faith in Christ and believe his word, because in his word it warns you about all these things. If you don't uh, believe in the Bible, you will end up being deceived by these things. So is this an actual giving of life to an inanimate object? Is it uh, a symbolic picture of uh, what we see uh, portrayed as the capabilities of AI. I saw a, um, or a, a, a tweet on uh, the X platform uh, talking about, uh, you know, well, what is going to happen if AI is perfected the place where people can have interactive relationships with AI-generated uh, characters and so on. Um, you know, is, is that what is going on here? Here's my studied answer to that. We don't know. We simply don't know. But we do know that uh, the people that are going to be taken in by it are individuals that are, first of all, going to be spiritually blinded, not technologically blinded. Uh, nobody's going to be taken in by this uh, because uh, the special effects were just too overwhelming. Uh, They're going to be taken in by this because they simply didn't rejected God's truth when it was presented to them and embraced the lies that the Antichrist uh, was, in fact, teaching. You know, a very interesting passage in Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 and following, 
where it talks about how uh, the way that God punishes sin is uh, man rejects God, turns his back on God, uh, suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness, and then God gives them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And the, the phrase gave, gives them over, gave them over, is repeated time and time again. One of the ways that God judges sin is to say, all right, you want to live your life without me? Live your life without me. Go ahead. Uh, whether you like it when you do or is another uh, issue, because again, sin pays its wage, and that is death, not only physical death, but spiritual death, and even death during life. So uh, when people will speculate about AI being the image of the beast, or could AI technology lead to the image of the beast, it's almost like the questions that come up that say, you know, is uh, a cashless society going to lead to the mark of the beast? Well, we could say, well, sure, it would definitely grease the skids. It would definitely get people used to the idea of taking a mark on your right hand or your forehead in order to be a part of a commercial system. Is uh, a global economy, is a cashless society the mark of the beast? No. We know this because in order to receive the mark, you have to worship the beast, and then you can receive the mark. Uh, nobody's going to receive it accidentally. Nobody's going to you know, have their arm twisted and say, oh, okay, I give in. Um, people will be killed if they don't receive the mark of the beast, but uh, it's not going to be something that you can coerce. You actually have to swear your allegiance to the beast spiritually uh, as your Lord and Savior, if you will, in order to receive that mark. The same way AI technology, deceptive, yeah, we see it's kind of got its funkiness in our day and age. You can spot an AI image kind of a mile away, but uh, will it be perfected? Will it become more persuasive? Well, certainly, but uh, just because AI is out there and can uh, put forth certain images that some people might find persuasive, it doesn't change the slightest bit of the text we have in the Bible. And if you know the Bible, you understand his word, uh, you're not going to be taken in by those things. The only ones who will are those who did not receive, catch this, the love of the truth in order to be saved. Right. So when, I guess, modern technology, modern events, modern innovation, modern individuals are in ways, bits and pieces put into certain Bible passages, we would not conclude that as a sound means of interpreting anything let alone biblical prophecy. Right. That's called newspaper eschatology. Yeah. So building on that point, we got a question from Robert uh, wondering if there are prophecies that pertain specifically to what happened in World War II. Now, like any other time in history, the War of the Roses that was called the Hundred Years' War, not because they warred for a hundred years, because they had that whole plague that uh, delayed festivities between them and their pole arms. The idea of reading into the fact that this was a conflict unlike anything the world had ever seen. Uh, we saw demonstrations of evil that essentially threw Dominion theology back a full century and a half before the internet. And then, of course, on and on it goes. People say, well, Hitler specifically targeted the Jews. And, oh, well, this ultimately led to the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. We don't doubt that that has prophetic significance. But when it comes to World War II in specifics, is there anything that we can say we should have seen coming 
as far as the rise of the Third Reich and the Axis? Well, I, I don't think you can say anything specific, but there are some principles that we can obviously look at in broad strokes that apply to that. Uh, wars and rumors of wars, check. Uh, Matt, Matthew 24, Jesus warned about these sort of things, increasing in frequency and intensity as the time of his return draws near. Uh, the world has never seen a global conflict like World War II uh, in its entire history, where you literally have the entire globe uh, in one sense or another. I don't know if it got to Antarctica or not, uh, but uh, the, the fact of the matter is uh, that was a pretty uh, major birth pain, if you will, uh, telling us that we're getting closer, that unprecedented things along this line can happen. Uh, man uh, getting the capacity uh, to destroy himself. Jesus said, unless those days were short and no flesh would uh, live through it, survive. Uh, you know, again, we could say in broad strokes, the advent of nuclear weapons and so forth uh, could be pointing in that particular direction. As far as Hitler himself is concerned, uh, in the book of 1 John chapter 2, in verse 18, we are told, little children is the last hour, and as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists, plural, have come by that we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. I think that's interesting on a couple of levels because, again, Adolf Hitler in his youth had exposure to Roman Catholicism. Uh, you know, there are those who will make the statement that uh, Hitler and his henchmen were Christians, quote-unquote. But uh, when you read, uh, for instance, uh, the Final Solution documents put together by Heinrich Himmler, we discover that Himmler's uh, final solution was not just the extermination of the Jews, but also the extermination of Christianity because it was too Jewish for their taste. They believed that the uh, way forward, Arianism, was to restore what they would consider the true religion, and that would be uh, basically Teutonic paganism, uh, the worship of Wotan and other deities along that line. Uh, those who were involved with the SS would go through an occultic initiation ceremony as a result of uh, achieving that status in World War II. So uh, was Hitler a little a antichrist? Certainly a preview of coming attractions. It'd be hard not to argue that, especially with his uh, supernaturally uh, passionate desire to wipe out uh, the Jewish people. Uh, certainly he was a preview of what the Antichrist is, is going to do, but he was not the Antichrist. Was he anti-Christ in the sense of wanting to do away with faith in Jesus Christ? Well, uh, you know, once again, fascinating documentaries out there, especially a couple that were uh, I saw during the Christmas season that talked about the systematic way uh, the Nazi party wanted to replace Christmas carols with songs that praised National Socialism and uh, the German people instead of uh, singing about Jesus. And so the, the move was, was on in that direction. Is that an anti-Christ kind of a thing to do? Yeah, in the small a sense of the term. There is going to be one, the Antichrist, but certainly Hitler fits the description, comes from an ostensibly Christian background, exposed to Christian truth, turns his back on that, embraces the occult, uh, was greatly influenced uh, by uh, those that were involved with the uh, occultic thought 
especially uh, early on in his 20s and so forth. Uh, I think he fits that description. But to say there is some prophecy, uh, say, of, uh, you know, again, uh, the the Tan Death March or uh, the uh, bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki or uh, Dresden or the Normandy invasion, uh, those things are simply not in the Scripture. So when groups, regardless of how well-received they might be by people with itching ears, unintentional, quote, the mindset that we need to be sensitive towards, as was our previous point, is just because you see bits and pieces of something in the present or even the past need to be considered with the whole of Scripture. Right. If there is a prophecy, and you say it's like, oh, why didn't we see it coming? Well, like uh, the Pirates in the Pirates of the Caribbean 3, when Calypso was turning 50 feet tall on top of their boat and transformed into crabs, it was very apparent this was it, Yeah. right? But if, on the other hand, we're going to say, well, you know, there's, like, lots of war and lots of evil people and hatred of the Jews and all that stuff, the Antichrist does those things, too. Oh, he must be the Antichrist. No sound interpretation of anything, sacred or not, would fly by the seat of, I'm going to pick these few details overlook all of the other things that don't fit into that time right. and ask the question, okay, <laughs> where's my priorities at? Is it finding the truth or is it finding an answer to what's currently got me excited? That's or not or getting thing. clicks or selling books. Which is deceptive and yeah. manipulative. We don't want to do that either. Yeah. So in short, Robert, no. But when it comes to, uh, again, well-meaning or not, people who will answer to the Lord for things like the harbinger or claiming the United States is in prophecy, Hey, people always want to bring that up, but just as I think a good follow-up, we're waiting on questions. When people say, well, is the United States um, predicted in biblical prophecy, or do we have any specific roles in the last days? There will be people, and I mentioned the Harbinger is one, who will take bits and pieces out of certain passages and commit these kinds of fallacies, if not deceptions. But when it comes to overt statements, First of all, are we in biblical prophecy, and what are the implications of that, positive or negative? Yeah, well, I think uh, after studying biblical prophecy since the 70s, uh, the first uh, uh, book that I read of a Christian variety, apart from the Bible, uh, was The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, and I've been a prophecy uh, buff ever since. Uh, obviously, we should uh, be uh, always looking for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the big questions that always comes up is, where's the United States in the Bible? Well, there have been a number of people that have tried to, I think, shoehorn the United States into the Bible. Uh, I think one of the places where they usually go is found in the book of Revelation chapter 18 that speaks about uh, Babylon the Great, that is the commercial Babylon uh, that is going to dominate the world economic system in the last days. Uh, you know, the, the, the problem that I have with all of this is that if you say that's the United States, because it talks about how uh, the merchants and the, uh, the, the, the mariners and so forth are looking at her destruction and wailing because uh, they're going to be out of a job and all of this, uh, and they'll say, well, see, you know, there's, uh, there's people that are sailing ships there, so it has to be a port, so this must be New York, and, you know, maybe this was 9-11, and, you know, and then and on you go. Uh, you know, I have just found that the safest course to take on these things is when the Bible says Babylon, it, generally speaking, means Babylon. 
Um, you know, when the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Uh, the idea that the Antichrist could, in a sense, uh, make Babylon, the actual city of Babylon in the Middle East, uh, the center uh, place of world commerce, is not really that far-fetched. Uh, when we look at the reign of Saddam Hussein uh, in Iraq before he was deposed, he literally dumped billions of petrodollars into uh, revamping and rebuilding the ancient city of Babylon. Uh, and uh, it's been done so, at least at such a level, that there have been a number of UN conferences that have been held there on that particular site, mostly cultural. But uh, could something like that actually literally happen? Well, especially since uh, most commerce is done by way of uh, the internet these days, no reason why actual Babylon could uh, not be that uh, fulfillment of prophecy. You really have to stretch to see the United States in this, which raises the inevitable question. Okay, so where, why is the United States mentioned in prophecy? Well, we've answered this question uh, on a number of occasions, but I think it, it bears repeating. I think there's three potential reasons why the United States is not mentioned in biblical prophecy. Uh, one of them has been put forward in the idea that uh, the United States is not in biblical prophecy mentioned there because uh, we just sort of fade from the scene. Uh, we lose the stomach or the wherewithal, the economic ability to be uh, the world's policeman, the 800-pound military and economic gorilla on the block that we are right now. And I think we're see certainly seeing signs of that same kind of decline. And uh, again, Great Britain went through the same thing. Uh, there was a time, roughly around 100 years ago or so, where the sun never set on the British Empire, uh, where uh, British warships ruled the seas, and Britain was the number one power on Earth. Well, that uh, was deposed of by World Wars One and Two, and the fact that uh, the British looked more to uh, making their society based upon meeting social needs rather than keeping up a military and an empire, and you really can't do both. We may very well do the same thing as far as the United States is concerned. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that the United States gets wiped out or decimated in some way in a limited conflict before the tribulation period gets going. Uh, Joel Rosenberg, our good friend, we quoted at the top of the program, has written uh, one of his political thrillers based upon the proposition that uh, the United States and North Korea get involved in a limited nuclear war with each other, which would obviously uh, badly damage the United States and open up the doors uh, for a reshuffling of the world order, uh, so to speak. Uh, so that's uh, a sad but possible uh, outcome that could happen as a result of all of this. Uh, the third, and this is the most optimistic, is this. What is the event that kicks off the tribulation period and brings prophecy into focus? What's the rapture of the church? The first thing that happens is uh, people from all over the world are instantly caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And if they do, uh, well, what is going to happen uh, to the United States? As we mentioned, the Barna organization, uh, the polling uh, arm of them, uh, estimates that there's some 54 million uh, professing evangelical born-again Christians in the United States right now. Well, out of a uh, grand total population around 300 million, that's a pretty good chunk. Well, say Barna is 
half right. Uh, say there's 25 million uh, genuine believers in Christ that are suddenly caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. One minute they're here, one minute they're gone. How would that affect the United States versus the rest of the nations of the world, or at least the main power players? I think we get hit harder than most, if not all. Uh, when 9-11 happened, just under 3,000 people lost their lives in the terrorist attacks that took place that day. And it took our economy a good three to four years to recover from that. Could you imagine what would happen in the United States if suddenly you not only have, uh, say, 3,000 people suddenly gone from this earth, but, uh, you know, multiply that by, you know, again, uh, 10,000. The impact upon the United States, I think, would be absolutely overwhelming. Uh, People in commerce, people in politics, uh, people that are are uh, individuals of of very important uh, influence culturally, suddenly gone. Uh, And and so I really believe, and I'd like to believe, that uh, the United States isn't mentioned because we are so decimated by the rapture of the church that we become an also-ran. You know, the Bible does talk about a bunch of nations in the world looking at the Antichrist and saying who's like the beast and who's able to make war with him. We might just be part of that, if you'll pardon the expression, amen chorus uh, that sings the praises of the beast in the last time. Uh, Probably not part of the ten-nation confederacy because that does seem to be a picture of a revived Roman Empire based upon Daniel's prophecies uh, about uh, the original Roman Empire giving way to a last days empire Uh, with ten toes, if you will, that's made up of iron and clay, people that are squeezed together but don't naturally bond with each other. So that uh, pretty much uh, describes uh, what we would call the European Union today. So I tend to believe for for those reasons, hopefully the third reason, the United States is not mentioned in biblical prophecy because we've got to clear the way, clear the decks, if you will, for that last day's world dominating dictator known as the beast or the Antichrist. Right. Uh, question from Dwayne, uh, who basically had a question about anger, self-control. There's people in his life because of his uh, disabilities uh, look at and treat him like a kid, and this naturally makes him angry. So when those emotions arise, what not only is the best decision to make from there, but as another follow-up, is anger always a bad thing? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing in the book of Ephesians, Dwayne, we're told uh, a very interesting insight about anger. And first of all, you know, again, I'm sorry that you tend to go through that uh, particular trial uh, in your life. But uh, there's a really interesting uh, passage uh, that, uh, that we find there. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, we're told, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Now, notice it doesn't say that being angry is necessarily in and of itself a sin. Uh, The fact of the matter is the, the capacity that we have to feel anger, which is the emotional reaction we have uh, to uh, some kind of injustice, some kind of wrong happening within our lives, is something that's God-given. It's a reflection, in a sense, of the image and likeness of God because we discovered that there are things that make God angry. We speak about the wrath of God, and God is able to exercise righteous 
indignation, righteous anger against sin and destructiveness and the, uh, the behaviors of people that end up exploiting others and so on, uh, you know, in, in such a way that uh, anger can be something that we can experience and feel without necessarily being sinful. You know, for instance, if I see some Weisenheimer on uh, the internet uh, making derogatory remarks or posting memes about Jesus, there's a certain amount of anger I feel toward that. I remember when the movie, uh, The Last Temptation of Christ came out, seeing that and how Jesus was so radically misrepresented in this movie, it made me angry. And uh, I remember being asked to, on a uh, panel talk show on a PBS outlet, you know, well, why are you Christians so upset? It's just a movie. And you know, I explained to him, I said, well, you need to understand that we as Christians don't follow Jesus you know, as some distant, idealized, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, end of the, the path, uh, sort of uh, uh, a, uh, a, a path we follow. We have a personal relationship with him. We love him personally. We believe him when he says that uh, he loves us, and that's why he died for us. And because of that personal connection that we have with Jesus, when Jesus is maligned and misrepresented, we're going to have an emotional reaction to that. You say, oh, but it's just art. It's just a movie. I said, well, uh, consider it this way. What if, uh, say, Martin Scorsese made a movie about your mom that portrayed her as a mass murderer? Uh, would you have an emotional reaction to that sort of thing? Well, you probably would because you care about your mom. You have a relationship with her and uh, you don't see this as having even a shred of truth behind it. You would feel anger as a result of that. That would be an example, I think, of feeling anger in a righteous way because of the relationship that we have with God. The problem that we run into uh, is this. Uh, in the book of James chapter 1 and verse 19, we are told, therefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Uh, what, what James is saying is anger is a very powerful emotion. It can be used in a positive and constructive way, but so can dynamite, if you will. If I want to uh, you know, flatten out some land and make it uh, suitable for a foundation for a house, especially here in rocky southeastern Arizona, I might have to use some dynamite to be able to uh, blast away some boulders and such. Uh, in that sense, it's constructive, it's creative, but dynamite can also be incredibly destructive if used indiscriminately. Anger works that same way. You know, I remember the original uh, incre uh, Incredible Hulk TV show with Bill Bixby. Uh, they talked about uh, this sign uh, that was flash at the beginning and the intro of it, and it would say danger, and then the D would uh, depart away from it in anger would come up. I think that's the way we have to look at anger. Uh, when we find ourselves being angry, well, first of all, we need to realize that like any other emotion, it's not good, it's not bad, it's just an emotion. What matters is what we do with it. And Dwayne, in your situation, if people have uh, you know, disrespected you or disregarded you or put you down uh, because of a disability that you have, at that moment, you know, you've got a choice. A uh, few could blame you for feeling angry for such bad treatment. But the question we got to ask ourselves is this as, as believers. Okay, how would Jesus respond to this? 
Well, you know, again, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, uh, he looked at those who did this sort of thing, who were openly mocking him at that time, and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Dwayne, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through because he has been uh, put down. He has been uh, treated uh, unjustly. And so because of that, one of the most important things I think we can do is when you start to feel that anger rise, one of two things. You can give into that anger and you'll discover something. Emotions, especially strong emotions, are excellent servants. They can tell you a lot about what's going on in your heart, but they're very poor masters. If you allow your anger to get the best of you, um, you know, it's like throwing kerosene on a fire. It's just going to make it worse. Uh, the other thing you can take a look at anger or a strong emotion as is like God's smoke alarm, his tap on the shoulder, saying, you know what, Dwayne, you know, you're feeling this anger right now, and the big temptation that you're going to have is to take your life and your situation into your own hands. Don't you think it would be better to give it over to me? God uh, always reminds me of three uh, very powerful scriptures when I find myself feeling overwhelmed by my emotions. Number one, I remind myself of Hebrews 13.5. There we read this, I will never leave you and never forsake you. The first thing I have to remember is, okay, God hasn't gone anywhere no matter how I feel. God's here with me. Then I remember Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who will be against us? If he didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him freely give us all things? Now, notice what that says. God is for us, you see. God's not only with me, he's for me. He wants me not to be defeated or overcome by my circumstances. He wants to show me how to overcome them. And finally, Isaiah 26, 3. I love this one. It says, you will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Now, when I find myself in a situation where I'm not experiencing peace, maybe in your case it's this anger, one of two things are probably true at that moment. Either your mind's not stayed on God or you're not trusting in him. And if that's the problem, that's also the prescription, right? Take a deep breath, disengage from the situation if you can, and just spend a moment remembering those promises of God. Okay, God, you're with me, you're for me, and you will restore your peace to me if I keep my mind stayed on you and trust in you. So, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my life again. Live your life out through me because I, I can't deal with these things myself. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to overcome. You know, Dwayne, the thing I've discovered is as often as I do that, no matter how my emotions are looking at getting the best of me, uh, the Lord always answers. He always brings that perfect peace. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When I pray and give my life over to the Lord, I experience his peace. When I take things into my own hands and say, okay, God, I'll get back to you later, not so much, but it's always a choice. Uh, side comment from uh, Brony Duck, who made the comment that the original ten nations of the European European Union were prophesied as those future ten kings. I assume he means of Revelation chapter 17. Nothing happened. Um, all due respect, but whoever told you that, as far as those were the prophesied ten nations, um, there's a difference between a failed prophecy and someone failing to represent a prophecy accurately. Yeah, and, 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 yeah and as you mentioned, that that's, this is a great illustration of what we would call newspaper eschatology. 
because we were told there's going to be a 10-nation confederacy mm-hmm. uh, that is going to come to power uh, with the beast. And those in, nations are in, named. In, in the last days. No. Oh, they aren't. They are not named. So if we were to go to the names of the European Union's t- original 10 nations and say those were prophesied, that would be a false statement. Yeah, but here's where newspaper eschatology comes in. Uh, people would say, oh, yes, 10-nation confederacy. Guess what? The European Union just took in its 10th nation. This must fulfill the prophecy. Well, it's an interesting coincidence. Uh, could be greasing the skids towards a future fulfillment of that prophecy, but it definitely wasn't the fulfillment of that prophecy. It's demanding, because of a current event we read in the newspaper, that this must be the fulfillment of this that gets us into trouble and misrepresents the predictions we find in the Bible. We want to avoid that if at all possible. Doma wants to know, uh, how should we celebrate New Year's Day, and where did the tradition on New Year's and New Year's resolutions come about? I don't know about resolutions, Doma, but it's been as old a tradition worthy of celebrating as long as people had a recollection of time. Uh, In the Bible, the Hebrews had a different calendar system, but they also celebrated New Year. There's nothing wrong with it. Just to make sure that whatever, Rosh Hashanah, acti- yeah. Yeah, whatever uh, activities accompany it, just make sure that they're not ungodly, and I'd say you're fine. Uh, when it comes to other questions, we've got about five minutes. Um, here's a question from Jamie, and this is an interesting one. She has an unsettled spirit right now and seeking counsel and guidance. She's been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I've always believed she is covered. However, recently she was educated that this is incorrect and that she should have been baptized in the name of Jesus only. She was told and researched that the Trinity formula was added by their Catholic Church, and that's why you don't hear the Trinity much in the Bible. I was also told this is why Peter made it clear to baptize in the name of Jesus. Now, that's a partially accurate statement. In Acts chapter 2, when the people at Pentecost asked him, what then shall we do, having been informed and cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit that they had crucified their Messiah, he says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Right. Now, they'll zero in on that and say, that's the true baptismal formula. Well, going on, the claim is that Jesus' words were changed by the Catholic Church in the 4th century. Already a red flag and already said to baptize in his name. So if you were to stand before Jesus, follow what he said to do, not what the translator says to do, she wants to follow the truth. Sure. Respect that, but that's already a problem. I want to do what Jesus said, not what the translator said. Well, how do you have access to what Jesus said? See the issue. Yeah. So um, basically, when it comes to her understanding of the Bible, she's familiar with Calvary, but she has enough brains to want to do what's right, regardless of what's familiar and traditional. Now, uh, Jamie, this is maybe a bit technical, but there's going to be three historical sources I'm going to recommend to you, both modern and ancient. The first is this principle, if you have stuff outside of the Bible and inside the Bible saying the same thing, you know that it wasn't added in later on. This was something that was widespread. There's a piece of literature called the Didache. Right. This means the teachings. Uh, Some people date it to around the 50s, others a little into the hundreds, but it's a very early church document that isn't the Bible, but is essentially a letter, a commentary, saying here's just a summary of some of the things you ought to be doing. Generally what the apostles taught. Yeah, that's what Didache was meaning. And the information included in it includes, oddly enough, the same baptismal formula we read in Matthew 28 and verse 19, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So if the Roman Catholic Church had a time machine, 
went back 300 years before they allegedly <laughs> changed it and did all that stuff, then you might have a case, but I'm being facetious on purpose. The second is what's called hostile witnesses. If you have people who don't even believe Christianity that say, now that's silly, then you got more reason to believe it. And as everyone's favorite textual critic of Christianity, Bart Ehrman would probably jump on every opportunity to dismiss it. Believe it or not, he is reported as saying that the original Matthew baptismal formula is the most likely one. He disagrees with scholars that do disagree with it, like F.C. Conybeare. I don't know or care if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The third that we need to keep in mind is that when these objections are leveled, just the logic in the argument in of itself. If you set up or stack the deck in your favor, it's the name of the fallacy, of saying that, well, I'm going to put things up in such a way where anything and every form of evidence that you give me, both before, during, and after the formulation of the biblical text, was changed as due to some elaborate conspiracy. Well, here's the didache that shows that this was the baptismal record. It says, well, Acts is before that, that shows that it was changed. Well, okay, well, here's the actual manuscripts that were dated around the time of the Sinaiticus. That was a Catholic church. They, they edited it. Well, now you're just changing all of the evidence to suit what you've already assumed is going to be the case. This isn't going to prove anything. Just be discerning when it comes to these kinds of arguments. You'll be fine. Yeah, the only thing I'd add to that is what does it mean to be baptized in the name of Jesus? Uh, being baptized as Jesus would want you to be baptized. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he gives us that formula. Yep. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time.